Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, there have been a series of events over the past few weeks that have really brought to attention this idea that Africa and many African countries are at a kind of a juncture, a crossroads. And on one side, it's China, and on the other side, it's the rest of the world. And we thought it'd be interesting to kind of take three events over the past few weeks, just two of them in particular over the past week, and use that to kind of showcase the really the decision that so many are facing now in terms of the direction that their economies and their societies are going between their legacy relations with the West and the international community and that in their growing dependence on China. Yes, and so we, we decided to focus on a few different actors. Um, the first place, John Kerry recently visited Africa this week. Um, so, of course, the U.S. is a, is a very strong um, stakeholder in Africa. Uh, the Tokyo International uh, Conference on African Development is taking place in Nairobi. Um, also this weekend, Jap- we're talking about Japan. And then the, the Bretton Woods institutions and uh, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, uh, you know, and, and, and the options and problems that offer Africa. You know, and that's a very diverse list that you put there. And what's interesting about all of these different issues is that China looms over all of them. I mean, there's a, in some ways a dark cloud, in some ways it's a rainbow. So let's kind of take your list and from the top here, talk about John Kerry, the U.S. Secretary of State. He went to Nigeria this past week where he met with President Muhammad uh, Buhari, and he also met with a number of religious leaders. He talked about military issues. He focused on human rights, religious tolerance, and anti-corruption measures. And in so many ways, the Kerry visit highlights the sharp contrast between how a visit by Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, would happen and the really different way that a secretary of state visit goes happens when it goes to Africa. So this idea that a visiting foreign minister comes and lectures people about human rights, religious tolerance, anti-corruption is, again, really a concept that only the Americans for the most part do. The French and the British also to some extent do it, but the Americans do it more than almost anybody else. And it's really remarkable in this day and age that the United States continues to do this in light of the fact that those very issues, human rights, religious tolerance, and even anti-corruption, are considerable issues in the United States right now. So we have, you know, clearly in the war against Islam, uh, or Islamic radicals, as the Americans would kind of say it, um, and Islamic kind of jihadist fighters, the the Americans were, you know, Kerry was really going after the Nigerian military for not going to extremes. So he said, quote, it is understandable in the wake of terrorist activity, some people are tempted to crack down on everyone and anyone who could theoretically pose some sort of threat. Now, this is interesting if it didn't come from the United States, where, of course, it's not Kerry's responsibility, but this is a country right now that is actively debating an entire ban on Muslim immigration. This is a country that, at the low end of the estimation, has killed 116 civilians through drone strikes. Most of those are Muslim. Most of those are innocent civilians. The high end of those estimates put them at 800 people. Uh, The very high end of those estimates put them into the thousands. So again, Kobus... Uh, My rant here against the United States is not to endorse what the Nigerian military is doing or even what the Chinese are doing, but rather to kind of question whether America continues to have the legitimacy to bring these types of issues up. This is such a complicated question because 
There's so many different Americas at play here. Um, you know, so in the first place, Kerry was responding to, as far as I understand, I think Amnesty International reports that anti-Boko Haram, um, uh, you know, work by the by the Nigerian military has led to human rights abuses. So, um, so there's that. In the second place is obviously also the, you know, so there's America as kind of voice of international human rights. Um, then there's America as security state, um, you know, kind of with its with its own kind of drone drone uh, presence in in Western Africa. Um, and, you know, I, I can I can see reasons and, and motivations for both of those Americas. Um, and from an African perspective, I I can see why African nations find the kind of preachy America, the the you know kind of don't 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 do kind of uh, you know don't don't um, break humanitarian rules in in pursuit of Boko Haram. Rather, you know, educate people and create better jobs. And you know the, the kind of message that that he gave. I can see why Africans African leaders could find that annoying, um, because I mean it is such a 20th century role for America to take. It's such a superpower preaching, you know, kind of it's, it, you know, I can see why that is irritating. On the other hand, I also have a bit of a, you know, I, I, like I, I have to ask myself if John Kerry isn't making the case for human rights, who is going to be in the international community? You know, kind of we, it's almost like we, you know, kind of we're moving to almost to a post human rights era um, in terms of people actually, actually speaking and advocating for human rights, you know. So it seems to be that that is weirdly the role that America is resented for, but it also is maybe a valuable role to have. I'm so muddled in, in my thinking about this. No, it's not easy. Um, I would feel better about this if the United States was a little bit more humble in how they kind of talk to the rest of the world. You know, instead of portraying the United States as a kind of place, this idealistic place of religious tolerance, which now increasingly it's not. I mean, you can ask any Muslim American today or any Sikh immigrant in the United States um, how difficult it is to be uh, openly uh, practicing their religion, whether it's to have a mosque in their community or to wear a turban or to kind of fly on a plane. Uh, it's not easy right now. If you're African-American in the United States and you are raising a young African-American male child, you have to have a talk. Um, these are human rights issues. These are religious tolerance issues. Um, clearly, we have anti-corruption issues. Uh, you know, we, you know I, I listened to a professor, and I can't remember his name, and he said he went to Europe to teach and lecture, and he says, you know, the United States does not have any corruption issues in government. Zero. He well, he said, what we have is we have campaign finance. So what we do is we put a bow on it with a different name. We call it campaign finance, which in Nigeria or in Vietnam or in China or in South Africa would just be plain out corruption. But we've dressed yes. it up with marketing language to make it kind of acceptable and digestible. And this, again, if anybody knows kind of the ins and outs and the details of American politics, you will sit there and just cringe when you see how they portray themselves overseas, again, with the duplicity. I feel you, though, when it comes to if the United States doesn't do this, who does? The French don't have this legitimacy. The British don't have this legitimacy. The European Union does not have this legitimacy, nor do the Chinese. So maybe we're going into this phase where there, there is nobody that has this legitimacy because we know too much in the era of social media. Yeah, I mean, it's so, oh, it's so complicated because the, the U.S. simultaneously 
you know, we, we're, in a, we're in a highly mediatized era. So, so human rights issues in the U.S. Is, is well known in the rest of the world. So, you know, kind of, I, I'm teaching a, a seminar at the moment where I, uh, where national image is is a, is a key issue. So, you know, I look at country branding, place branding, soft soft power, uh, public diplomacy. This kind of overlap between between uh, public relations issues and politics. Um, and so, I asked my students. I wanted to, to to try and get them to to talk about their perceptions of of places. So, I asked them if they could go on a on an all expenses paid vacation anywhere in the world. Where would they go? Now, keep in mind, these are all my entire seminar class are all young black women. Um, all of them said, like, I expected them to say Paris, New York, London. Um, none of them said Paris, New York, London. They all said Southern Indian Ocean Islands, like the like Mauritius, Seychelles, like beach resorts. Um, when I asked them, so what about Paris, New York, London, and especially New York, they said, we don't want to deal with America. It's just a bunch of races, <laughs> you know? Um, and at the same time, you, you um, Black Lives Matter has crucially shaped the way the the, the entire way that human rights um, and blackness and whiteness and so on is discussed in South Africa. Black Lives Matter as a hashtag is trending in South Africa on on almost a weekly basis. So it's a weird this weird situation where both the problem and the solution is American, um, and it it kind of shapes the entire kind of horizon of of the discussion. Um, you know, and you know, it's and of course, South Africa is an English-speaking country, so it's even exacerbated in that, yeah. in that level. Well, bringing this back to China, and again, it just highlights, and this is the the example, and this is what we saw this week in this story, how the the Chinese kind of approach with non-interference and not getting involved in the issues of human rights, militarism, religious tolerance, anti-corruption, which are clearly internal affairs of other countries in many ways is appreciated by African leaders, oftentimes for the wrong reasons, because they don't want the meddling Americans or Europeans coming in and telling them what to do, because oftentimes what they're doing is bad, and it's really, really violent and awful to, to a lot of people who are suffering innocently. So the Chinese, when they don't say anything, are often enabling that awful behavior. But at the same time, at least there isn't this duplicity that really becomes more apparent with the Americans and the fact that the Americans have not moderated their speech to reflect the complexities in their own country when they talk in countries like Nigeria highlights to me the hypocrisy and again why so many African countries do look to China with more of a smile because they don't have to deal with this kind of duality. Let's move on. Very, oh, you, uh, you want to comment on that? Sorry, just, just one point. I think, I think one, just, just from a kind of a media perspective, I think it's also important to, to look at, you know, I, th- I think one, one issue is one, one needs to ask whether is it, is this hypocrisy or is it a situation where America is, is, um, communicating in such a kind of a complex way, um, where, for example, like the, you know, you, you mentioned that America as a country is is talking about a possible Muslim ban, um, but at the same time, which Kerry is not is policy. This, or, let me just comment that I'm not it, saying that's policy. That is simply a, a campaign. That's simply a, a discussion that's, that's happening right. in, in in the American country election. But of course, Kerry is coming from a deeply democratic place. You know, a deeply dem- democratic party place, so a small democratic place, so a small D democratic place. Um, no, big D democratic place. Sorry. Um, you know, the you know, is is speaking. Is, is embedded in the in the American government and speaking for the American government, but is also embedded in the Democratic Party, and so participating in that 
internal debate by com- commenting and acting externally. So there's always this kind of like weird permeability between internal American discussions and external American actions. Um, and I think that that kind of also just muddies the water. Sorry, just a very academic. Yeah. Well, uh, so clearly we can go on this issue quite a bit. We would love to hear what you think. Uh, every time that I start criticizing the United States, it, do- it does generate email to us. Um, because people don't really do it that often, and you don't really hear Americans doing it that often. Um, let me just kind of head a little bit of the email off at the pass. I'm not unpatriotic. I don't hate America. I'm not anti-American. I'm not self-loathing. None of those things. I just believe that in a democracy, we have the right to question our government and how our government officials are behaving abroad and what they're saying. So with that out of the way, please send me your emails. We'd love to hear from them. Uh, let's talk about another country that's facing a very similar kind of intersection in that crossroad I talked about at the top of the show. This is Edgar Lungu's Zambia. He just recently won re-election in a highly contested race that is still being sorted out as we speak right now. Uh, I'm not sure that President-elect Lungu is going to be very happy with the country that he's now governing uh, or re-governing, if you will. A 9% fall in the kwacha against the dollar just since April. Inflation is forecast to average about 18.5%, but I think if you're in Lusaka, you'll probably find that it's more, and that's a national average. The major cities tend to run higher. Um, 60% of Zambians are now living below the poverty line. 42% are considered to be in extreme poverty. Um, Growth is plummeting from 10%, which was six years ago. This was the Africa Rising narrative, and Zambia, in many ways, Cobus, was at the heart of the Africa Rising narrative. Now we're looking at 3.6% in 2015, and next year it's forecast to be at 3.2%. So Zambia now is in this precarious position financially, and they have two choices, and they're actively, you know, engaging these two choices. It's the IMF on one side, and behind door number two is China. Uh, There was a great article in Business Day Live which kind of highlighted the contrast in all this. Kobus, talk to us a little bit about the differences between the IMF and China. There's some very fundamental differences, one being the kinds of finance they offer. So the IMF tends to be much more amenable than China to offer budgetary support. Um, so the IMF would frequently be the logical place one would go to if one is one's entire budget is about to collapse, rather than, for example, you want funding for to build a bridge or, or a dam. In the second case, project-related finance, China does a lot more of that. Um, and China has historically been quite wary of lending to to governments simply to keep them going. Um, So Zimbabwe being a key example there, uh, where, you know, Zimbabwe has frequently asked for finance from China to to essentially cover budget shortfalls, um, and the Chinese are frequently not, didn't want to bite. Um, The other issue is that um, the IMF usually comes with a whole bunch of strings attached, most notably that they frequently also call for tied austerity measures, um, which has backfired spectacularly in Africa in the past. Um, the structural adjustment of the 1980s and 90s uh, was a, a disaster in Africa, um, you know, and, and led to widespread hardship. Um, so frequently, um, you know, kind of if you get support from the IMF, then you need to do start, the government is for then forced to start doing things like cutting fuel subsidies. Um, 
which are then or food subsidies occasionally, which then frequently causes food prices to spiral and inflation to spiral, um, leading to a lot of of popular discontent. The problem with Chinese loans, on the other hand, is that they are frequently tied to having to use Chinese contractors, which brings with them a, a bunch of other issues, and also that um, they are they frequently tend to lock down your your uh, commodities that your country produces. So frequently, a lot of these a lot of these loans um, have to be repaid in oil or cocoa or a bunch of other commodities, and that means that you are locked into that no matter what the price of oil or cocoa does. So the, the situation is some oil producing countries had big oil back loans um, with China and when the oil price fell that means they have to pay back three times or four times as much oil as they thought as, as they budgeted for originally. So it, it becomes a very complicated choice. It does and in many ways that is the core of the problem for Zambia because over the past 10 years since those t- days of 10% growth, Zambia did not do enough to diversify its economy beyond copper exports. It now is the number two copper exporting country in all of Africa, and it's been that way for a long time, but it got lazy on that. And what what we mean by lazy is that when they had cash windfalls uh, five, six years ago, really at the end of the Michael Sada era, uh, instead of kind of investing that in education, investing it in key infrastructure, they gave government raises. Now, I understand the political imperative to do that, but you're now suffering from that inability to diversify beyond copper. So when copper prices stay so low and so much of your Chinese debt is tied up in copper, uh, you then start running into the cash problems that you talked about here. One other very quick point between the choice that Zambia has to make between the IMF and the Chinese, that the Chinese money oftentimes takes years to develop in terms of negotiations. So it doesn't happen fast. And uh, there's not an ATM. You saw this with Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, who desperately went cap in hand to Beijing asking for a bailout. He couldn't get it. Most times when uh, African heads of state try to engage the Chinese for some kind of quick fix, it doesn't work, as you pointed out. Um, and so the IMF it can turn on the spigots of cash much faster. IMF negotiations have been going on since March and April. Uh, they've been delayed a little bit because of the election uncertainty that's going on right now, but they're expected to kind of continue in the coming weeks and months. And most most people are thinking that IMF will come back into the, the picture in Zambia in a big way. Kobus, last thoughts on this. You know, it feels like back to the future again, that here we are, African country, export commodity dependent, you know, commodity exporting dependent, back in a massive IMF bailout. It feels like 1985 all over again. We really haven't made much progress in some sense. Maybe I'm just reading the narrative wrong. You know what? Like, I, I and I, I don't think anyone who you know, I, I'm not. I don't think of myself academically as an Africanist. I don't particularly think uh, you know, kind of of myself as an African studies person. But you know, kind of, I am engaged with Africa in lots of different ways, and like. Uh, you're not really supposed to say this, but Africa is a bummer sometimes. When it's so, so not just, let, let, let's be fair. It, it's not just Africa. I mean, we have, no. you know, so it's easy to kind of harp on Africa. But certainly, I mean, as, as, a, as an American citizen, it's not really a great time to be American either. So, But it's, you know, but, but the problem with Africa is like certain things just never go away. Because, you know, I, I remember reading the original like foundation document for the Bandung Conference in 1955. So, you know, for those of people who are not steeped in this nerdy 
stuff like the Bandung conference was a was a big conference of of countries that were not the West and not the Soviet Union. So it was a lot of like you know kind of recently decolonized countries in Southeast Asia and Latin America and Africa that all met in in Indonesia. And in that big that big document there there in 1955 they made a big point of the need to move beyond exporting raw minerals from Africa and the need to beneficiate and yeah. develop their you know kind of related industries then and now. Didn't like nothing changes. Yeah. It's so depressing. It really hasn't evolved as far as I think and as a lot of people hoped that it would. And let's go to our third topic very quickly and kind of again highlighting a choice or uh, you know alternatives that Africa is facing. Uh, that comes in the form of Japan. And for those of you not familiar with the Japan-China rivalry, uh, it dates back all the way to World War II, where in Europe, by contrast, World War II has long been settled. Here in Asia, it is not settled. Uh, territory disputes are still very fresh. Uh, borders are still very, very uncertain. Uh, militaries face each other daily now, in, particularly in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Uh, in a very, very tense standoff that have their roots that go back decades uh, to some of the outcomes of World War II. That now, that tension, that rivalry between Japan and China that has been fueling for itself for the past, you know, say 30, 40 years, uh, is now making its way to Africa's shores. And it comes in the form of aid conferences, uh, in part. So just recently, in this past week in Nairobi, the 6th Tokyo International Conference on African Development, also known as TCAD, wrapped up. And that is the Japan version of FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. Kobus, this is more up your lane because you are a Japan specialist. Um, the, Chi the Japanese really want to make sure that they are not over, you know, outshined by the Chinese in Africa, when in fact, whatever they do, they will never compete with the Chinese. Uh, let me just give a couple statistics here to set the table for you so you can give some analysis. Consider that in 2014... Chinese companies announced, announced just 32 foreign direct investment projects across the continent, uh, which in totaled $6.1 billion. The same year, Japan did $1.5 billion, so China was six times bigger. Uh, you know, the, for, for, on the FDI side, Japan is not even in the top 15, and that's according to the Ernst & Young Africa Attractiveness Survey from last year. Uh, you know, Portugal is higher than Japan, Spain is higher than Japan, India, South Africa is higher than Japan, France, UK, so they're not even to be seen. So very interesting that they, they're saying they want to compete, but at the same time they don't. So what they've done is they've brought out a massive aid or an, an investment package. The Chinese number, if you recall, from FOCAC in December in South Africa was $60 billion over six years, if I'm correct. I think that was 60 over yes. six the Japanese are now coming out with a new package of $30 billion over three years. So the Japanese, at least on a per capita or at least on a kind of dollar-for-dollar dollar basis, uh, are trying to compete head-on with the Chinese. Okay, Kobus, what do you take of this in terms of the choices that Africans have to make with the Japanese and the Chinese? Um, some of these, you know, there's been an interesting kind of discussion in the African press about this, this rivalry, and I, you know, kind of like it's it's always interesting. Like the, you know, when you speak to the actual the actual diplomats, they always try and downplay the rivalry, of course. But you know, this this kind of um, perception that Japan is is 
you know, trying to match China in, in, in Africa in some kind of ways. In the African press, there was a uh, quite a, you know, several several people wrote, well, this is fine. This is not a problem. Like, you know, kind of like, let them all come. Like, you know, we, we can, we, you know, the, the more the merrier. Um, you know, kind of with the, with the, of course, the assumption that, that Chinese aid and Japanese aid are compatible. And I think to a large extent, they are in the sense that, you know, kind of as we, as we said, um, Chinese tend to do a lot of project-specific financing. Um, the Japanese do some of that as well. Um, but the Japanese also do a lot of old-school, classic um, overseas development assistance. So they're, they're actually, it's like old-school aid, you know, kind of where they, they actually uh, aid education and, you know, like healthcare and, and, the, and those kind of things. And some of this $30 billion is going to go into that. However, I think in, in certain key areas, the aid is absolutely not compatible, um, especially when it comes to the, the, the um, political payoffs that are supposed to come. One of the key things that the Japanese are pushing is UN reform. Um, so the, the Japanese want more U, um, UN Security Council seats, and they specifically want a Japanese UN Security Council seat. Um, and with that, they, they're pushing also that there should be an African seat on the UN Security Council. A permanent a permanent member on the, on the UN Security Council should be African. And they're linking those two. Um the the last thing the Chinese are interested in is having Japan on the UN Security Council. I can tell Council. you there's this a snowball's a chance in hell that that will ever happen yes, so long as never that, it will never happen that Japan will get a permanent Security Council seat. And, you know, kind of like if, if you think the, the one China policy and, the, and, you know, kind of like Africans dealing with Taiwan and Africans dealing with China is, a, is, going, is problematic, you should see what's happening with, between China and Japan in relation to, you know, in, to, in relation to that particular UN, UN reform issue. That's, it's, you know, so that is potentially a very fraught space for Africans to kind of find themselves, especially if they're getting major financing from both sides. Yeah, um, I mean, and I think that that could be difficult. Let, let's pick up on that point right there because I think that's the key point. I don't think ninety nine point eight percent of any African leader considers the Japan China dispute relevant for them. The only thing that they seem to like, and this is what I picked up from Uru Kenyatta's comments, the president of Kenya this past week in Nairobi when he was talking about TCAD, he was just very grateful that the Japanese both chose Nairobi as the venue for the Sixth Forum, but at the same time that the kind of the, the, the numbers are so large coming out of Japan. So I get the sense they're like, great, if you guys want to fight and you want to keep showering money on us, that's great. You know, take out your fight here all you want as long as you keep bringing the cash to us. Again, for me, what's depressing about this narrative is that it's the, the Chinese continue to engage with these kind of big aid packages, and we're starting to see you know, the same types of behavior dependencies that we saw with the IMF, the World Bank, and the, and the debt crisis that came in the 70s and 80s, now with the Chinese, that you know, when, when, when the FOCAC rolls around, it's everybody lines up with their bowl, kind of waiting to be filled by the Chinese, and now the Japanese are kind of stepping into that. Is there no more creative way to engage these economies and grow these economies other than showering $30 billion of handouts? I, I'm just raising that yeah. question because I don't think it's healthy in the long run. 
I also don't think it's healthy, and I think it it puts Africa in in the worst possible position, which is essentially aid recipient with lots of raw minerals. You know, kind of. So it's again, it's it's just Africa is just pushed back to the 1950s. Um, in com- in comparison to that, I you know, kind of, okay, I'm South African, so of course I, I have this particular weird particular view of it. But like, I find South South African engagement with with Africa frequently decried by Africa as it is. I find actually in a weird way more inspiring because South Africa tends to think. Oh, of, of Africa, the of, of the rest of the continent as potential clients, you know. So, so the, you know, so uh, as you have do a, the lot Chinese, of, a lot of resources. Uh, fair enough, but you know, Huawei, yeah, as do the Chinese. I mean, certainly Huawei, ZTE, Lenovo see Africa True. as clients. There's no doubt there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Japanese tend to not see Africa as clients, not, I think, because they don't think of them in that way, but simply because Japan's economy has shifted. Um, so, you know, the Japan of the 1980s is not the Japan of now. The Japan of the 1980s was still a lot was was a lot similar to China now in the sense that the economy was 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 still located a lot on mass production. Um, the Japan of now is mostly exporting very high level technology, high level design. That's going to be a hard edit. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. You already said that yeah. part. I got you right up until you said the Japan of now, and so maybe you can just explain, pick up saying what the Japan of now is. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. Um, <clears throat> The Japan of now is much more focused on high technology, high design, very expensive stuff. You know, so so I think there's just is a is a natural, much smaller market for Japanese stuff in in Africa now than there is for Chinese stuff because Chinese, you know, China is has taken over Japan's position of just mass producing lots of lots of kind of small scale consumer electronics, for example. Um, you know, Japan has moved out of that game. Uh, you know, kind of and given it over to, to China. So I think the you know the that it's not as easy for Japan to have that kind of level of engagement with Africa as it is for China. Okay, interesting, Kobe. So I picked these three topics this week as a kind of an example of the kind of choices that Africa has to make, or maybe not. There may be not choices. You can have Japan and China the same way I can have, you know, vanilla and strawberry ice cream at the same time. It's not a choice. It's a little bit indulgent. Uh, So in many ways, maybe it's not a binary choice, but it's a change in philosophy. The Japanese approach in Africa is certainly different than the Chinese approach. The IMF approach in Africa is different than the Chinese approach. The American approach in Africa is different than the Chinese engagement strategy. And so it's forcing, if nothing else, African governments and African leaders to be more dexterous, to be more flexible, to be more adaptive to these different styles. Because in the old days, they would primarily deal with London and Paris and and Brussels and a select few capitals. But today they're dealing with the Brazilians, the Chinese, the Portuguese, the Americans, the Japanese, all of these different. So it'll be interesting to see how they encounter these different partners and engage these different partners in a way that hopefully betters their interests rather than simply stuffing more cash into the pockets of leaders. Kobus, give me your final thoughts. I think a lot of their of their success depends on how much imagination African leaders have. Um, and this for me is a problem because I, you know, kind of I, I really frequently see a lack of imagination from African governments about what Africans can what Africa can be, like what where where they can grow, um, and what kind of help that would really help them to grow. They seem so stuck in certain narratives, again, just being cursed by the presence of Roman rules in, you know, kind of in their countries and not really pushing new ways of, of developing. Um, so, I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not super optimistic, but hopefully there'll be some African leaders who can actually engage with these, these external actors in a way that will actually push Africa forward in a new direction. 
Okay, that's an optimistic way to end the show. We'll be back again very soon. For Cobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, then you should definitely head over to the China Africa Project's website at www.chinaafricaproject.com. Sign up for a weekly email newsletter full of the week's top China Africa headlines and context. And for up-to-the-minute developments, come to facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where stories are updated every four hours. The China Africa Project sends a big thanks to publishing partners at The Huffington Post, the Asia Society's China File website, Pulse Ghana, Pulse Nigeria, and Yes Africa.